Welcome into Chelsea Mic'd Up. I'm the host, Mike Ryan Ruiz. On today's show, I will sob into an open microphone for 40 minutes as Chris Whittingham, my neutral observer co-host, will pat me on the back and tell me everything's okay. And then I'll just scream and cry for my binky. Everything's okay, Mike. Where's my binky? <laughs> I'll look for it. And Grant Wall joins us on Chelsea Mic'd Up. Grant is a familiar face and voice to many soccer fans in the United States and abroad. He is making his Chelsea Mic'd Up debut. We will talk to him not only about what's going on with Chelsea, but the Premier League as a whole because, hey, there seems to be a really good team playing in there. Let's not mention their names. And we'll talk about what's going on at the goalkeeper position, a hot topic amongst Chelsea Twitter. We'll delve into what's going on with Kepa. All that and more coming up on this week's edition of Chelsea Mind Up. Welcome into Chelsea Mic'd Up. I am your emotional host, Mike Ryan Ruiz. I'm joined by my neutral observer. And in the history of Chelsea Mic'd Up, I think we've only had like maybe one or two sad episodes. We've been pretty lucky here on Chelsea Mic'd Up that Chelsea have been fairly resilient this year and they erase the bad result almost immediately in time for us to record our next pod with, hey, a not-so-bad result. This is two very bad results, and honestly, I can't tell which one's worse. I know you got one point in one and zero points in the other, but to draw a 10-man arsenal when they were down to 10 men for 64 minutes, and look, I wasn't expecting... Chelsea to be off of a transfer ban, and I don't want this to be the panic buy show. But this isn't a knee-jerk reaction to an isolated incident with Chelsea. If you've been paying attention to what Chelsea's struggles have been this season, you didn't think that game was over when Chelsea went up 1-0 and Arsenal were down to 10 men, because that just meant Arsenal were going to be more committed to a counterattack. And Chelsea haven't really proven that they can break these teams down, even though Arsenal was down to 10 men. Chelsea can't break down 11-man sides, and Chris, they can't break down a 10-man side. Yeah, I mean, I'll give them credit because I thought they had some ideas that were working pretty well in terms of getting crosses in, and they're always on the brink of scoring a goal, but at the moment, they can't score the goal. And I think they played some really good stuff, particularly opening half hour. I actually thought they were way better before the sending off, before the penalty was converted by Jorginho, and it was won by from a terrible back pass from Skorja Mustafi, and uh, you know David Luiz doing his best to try and make something of that, and at least try and deny Tammy Abraham. It was a clear red card. The rules more than dictate that that's a red card along with the along with the penalty, and. I, just, I think it, we can agree selling David Luiz to Arsenal is a bit of good business. <laughs> yeah, getting a transfer fee for a player that is in his mid-30s that is very mistake-prone, yeah, I'd say that was pretty decent business. That appears to be a double agent for <laughs> for you, <laughs> completely sabotaging your London rivals almost at every turn. He's he, he's Look, another frustrating part about this is that's the best Arsenal's got. You know, yeah. it, like I was watching the game, I was turning to you, they literally have no one else. Yeah. They have these are their best options. That is not I mean, that is a complete overhaul that needs to be done to that defensive team that got two shots and both went in. And this leads to a larger discussion. I didn't think that the talking point from this game was going to be Keppa. I think that's more of a Newcastle game. But if you watch the replays, and it stinks because you're always gonna have to address Keppa's height when you talk about his struggles. And oftentimes, these are balls that are just out of reach. <laughs> that, yeah. That you're thinking to yourself, man. If he was six foot six, this wouldn't be a problem. If he were Petr Cech, 
that equalizer from Bellerin, that was shot from so far outside that you would think he would be able to get to it. I think the problems with Kepa go beyond just that one isolated incident, though. And the Newcastle match, again, a set-piece burning Chelsea in later moments. And you thought, at least, okay, with the Newcastle game, at least, yeah, we're going to struggle to break down, but we're not going to have the knucklehead goal concession at the end of the game that loses us the match. Well, that happened. And Kepa doesn't come off of his back line, which I think has been sort of a returning theme. There are just aspects of Kepa's game. And when it's cooking, it's spectacular because he mm-hmm. can make some spectacular saves. But there are certain frustrations when he's not giving you the sorry ball ball placement delivery from the back. You start dissecting aspects of his game and you realize, okay, he's not that aggressive in the air. He doesn't really like to come off his back line. He's a few inches shorter than some of our previous goalkeepers. The bigger one, I mean... A draw against Arsenal at home, four points from six against Arsenal, in theory, is not bad, the str- right? The, the struggles at the bridge against bad sides. Yeah. It, it, no, to me, and even going away to Newcastle and having 65% of the ball, having 19 shots to four, uh, leading in shots on target, leading in expected goals, creating chances, and not putting them away. And Frank Lampard has talked about how we can't practice finishing and creating chances any more than we already do. And yet they're struggling to create chances and score goals. And I just, I don't know what the answer is other than finding world-class players that you're going to pay $150 million for. Like, there has to be internal improvement. And the other thing, and, and we talked about when we were watching the Arsenal game, was, you know, Mason Mount has gone through an up-and-down period. If you're going to go to a youth movement, this is what you're signing up for. You're signing up for players to grow in the middle of the season and have down periods and have up periods and not necessarily have every answer for top-level opposition. Yeah, I mean, you can look at Arsenal's squad and not necessarily be impressed by the names, but they're still playing for Arsenal. They're still top-level Premier League players, and it's going to be hard week in, week out to do this if you don't have proven world-class players. That's what it takes. And even Man Man City have that, and they don't do it every week. It's hard. I'd like to circle back on that point, but before we do, let's hear real quick from the manager himself, his post-match comments, courtesy here of the Fifth Stand app. We're disappointed not to win. Clearly, I think we started the game really well. We get our goal. They go down to 10 men. Um, did we deal with them having 10 men? Probably not good enough, no. But in the big picture, and the, the basic terms, we created enough to score more goals, and we gifted them two goals. The two opportunities they have, they score. One, we don't defend the edge of their box on our own corner when people should know their jobs that's a mistake Uh, and then the softest of softest goals for the second goal to roll it in uh, on the left foot from the right back that's Frank Lampard in his own words and I want to circle back to your point that you made before we toss to that sound clip which is you know buying world-class players and obviously the transfer ban has been lifted I think the problems with Chelsea are quite obvious we're talking about it week in and week out I don't know if that's necessarily correctable within one winter window, considering that the players that are made available, you don't really find the world-class cure-all mm-hmm. available in no. the winter window. I mean, you hardly ever find them available, period. Yeah, very true. Yeah, And the names that Chelsea are linked to and the names that Chelsea fans tweet about, these, these are players on big-time clubs that are not going to be made available while their clubs are still alive in Champions League. So let's recalibrate. But... There are some things available in this market that can absolutely help Chelsea. Another thing that can help Chelsea is health. Pulisic, Kovacic, Reese James, N'Golo Kante, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Tammy Abraham. How many times have we seen them all in the same starting 11? 
I never, I don't think. I feel, I yeah. feel, I feel like we can say, let's throw Tamori into that mix. How many mm-hmm. times have we, these are have all been, at times, players that we've been raving about on this podcast. And for whatever reason, they have never all been healthy at the exact same time or never all been in form at the exact same time. That would help. But also, this is a reality of club football. This is the reality of playing in a physical league like the Premier League. Especially in December, January, when the games come at a rate of speed that is just horrifying. And it's the reality of dealing with a young side that was in the midst of a transfer ban that couldn't really add the necessary depth. And the depth that it did add was youth. And you're going to have the struggles, as you identified, with Mason Mount and older players that are probably on their last chance with their national teams out of contract. And you need to find the delicate balance there. Do I think Olivier Giroud could have helped this team? Absolutely. Especially when Reese James is over there whipping and crosses and you're desperately hoping for someone that's a little bit better in the air. Or when you're stuck in the middle of an ugly game and you realize that you have one of the best dirty working strikers in the entire world there. And obviously, look, at the time of this recording, things can change by the time we've recorded this, it gets to your ears. Chelsea could be linked to somebody that you didn't even know was available. But Chelsea have some very serious problems, and they might be able to find a Band-Aid in this window, and that might be enough to keep them in the top four. But if you're looking at the current state of affairs, Chelsea's inability to correct very obvious problems, top four is looking more and more difficult. Well, you're aided by the fact that the competition for the top four is just not strong. I mean, even Arsenal today, yeah, they got a point away from home, but still, I think, nine points off Chelsea. Man United just lost Marcus Rashford for three months. I don't rate them as tough competition to get into the top four. Um, Sheffield United are such an upstart story, and congratulations to them for what they've done, but they're not going to get into the top four. It's Wolves, and uh, Wolves that are you know in Europa League, that they're, they've played the most matches of any team in the Premier League. They, they, they've already played like 40 games. They're playing every three days, and I don't know if they're going to be able to sustain unless they make additions. So... You might be able to get away with it for this year, and you seriously wonder what the plan is going into next year in terms of do you continue to keep this squad? You want to let 19, 20, 21-year-old players continue to grow and develop, but ultimately that next step is finding ways to break teams down. They clearly work on it a lot. They've identified it as a problem. It's time to find the solutions, and and the solutions are, for me, the Band-Aid, if there is going to be one, is internal improvement. However it is that you go about achieving that. And fitness. Right, of course, of course. And consistency in selection and consistency in availability of the players that you think are best suited to do that. But you have a full 25-man squad for a reason is because there have to be a depth of answers, not just one answer. And I think that's where Chelsea are right now. Let's regroup. This was probably the most depressing (laughs) opening segment in the history of Chelsea Miked Up. We need some energy injected into here because I feel like you're feeding off of what I'm projecting. What I'm projecting is someone that could just fly off the handle at any second because he's... You're emotional. The Newcastle one was hard enough, but you drop a game like that. And you almost look like you're going to get away with it, too. I mean, we were having all the the same conversations we were having at 2-1, right? It was not an enthusiastic 2-1, and then you give away the goal at the end, and it just sort of of hammers home the point. No, this pod would have been, we would have always just fell back on the fact that, well, you got three points, Mm -hmm. and you have a few days to get healthier and try to continue to improve it. But when they ripped two full points away from you, Look, I'm a process over results person, and even if they got that that win, I would have been identifying the same things that we're identifying here, which is really the same things that we've been identifying for months of this podcast. But they've proven to be resilient 
throughout this season, and they're going to need to tap into that, especially with the European fixtures coming down the pike like a freight train. I'm scared of Bayern Munich. <laughs> At this point, I'm scared of Hull sitting back. <laughs> Grant Wall joins us next. Watch every minute of every match. Download the Fifth Stand, the official Chelsea app. I'm going to go ahead and classify our next guest as a friend of the pod, Grant Wall. This is his formal debut on the show, but Grant was actually helping us out when we were beta testing this whole thing. And there is a doozy of a Grant Wall interview that you people (laughs) never heard. So we bring on Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated to sort of talk us through Chelsea season up until this point. Obviously, the disappointing result where they draw against a 10-man arsenal leads to larger questions about some of Chelsea's struggles against defensive-minded teams. And obviously, one of the points that I made in the opening segment, Grant, is Pulisic, Tammy Abraham, Kovacic, Reese James, Tomori. These are players that I don't think have ever been on the, the same pitch at the same time. As you see Chelsea in their top four position right now, but barely hanging on, do you sort of see the same struggles with Chelsea's season? Yeah, no, I do. I mean, it's uh, it's a weird one. You know, you do kind of wonder how Chelsea would do if they sort of had everyone healthy or at least close to everyone healthy, and they don't. I would say, though, you know, they're, they're, they are hanging on in fourth place, and there's right now at least a six-point gap with uh, Man United and Wolves, and then five points up in third place is Leicester City. Nobody's playing that well in that group right now. So I, I think Chelsea's kind of lucking out. It's almost like Southampton's the only team like in four through 10 that seems to be playing well right now, which is crazy. And I think Christian Pulisic is a little symbolic of, of the situation. He's had these sort of small injuries. And that was a big concern for him after the way things went for Pulisic last season with Dortmund, where he just had a series of injuries and he really couldn't get in a, any sort of a long-term rhythm. You kind of say the same thing for the whole Chelsea team at this point. Is that a long-term concern for you with Christian Pulisic? Because uh, we, we mentioned it on the podcast about how he has had a s- series of small knocks that have led to him being out for stretches of time. Is that something that for you at such a young age is a concern that has already begun? Yes, it's the single biggest concern with Christian Pulisic. You know, he's done so much, achieved so much already. He's still a young guy, but he's got a lot of experience at this point. But that's the concern is every year, it seems like he's had some sort of injury issue and he'll get on a nice run like he had with Chelsea. And then he'll end up being out for a couple of weeks or three weeks. And I know it's frustrating for him too. Um, you know, my friend Alexi Lalas over at Fox likes to say that uh, staying healthy and not getting injured is a skill. And I I don't know if I would totally go as far as Alexi goes with that, but I think there is something to that. You know, you don't want to get to become a player who had injuries define his career like Arjen Robin sort of did. And, and Robin certainly had some very high heights, but we're always going to think about what he could have done had he been healthy more often. And in terms of overall big picture with Christian this season, when we talked to you a few months ago, it looked a lot different than it does now. Now I think we can pretty well say that Christian's place within the Chelsea setup is solidified. What did those few months, those three or four months of him playing well mean ultimately to his future at Chelsea and just him as a figure in big European football? Well, I think it's a, a really good thing that it finally happened. You know, there are obviously concerns at the start and, you know, so much of sports and it's not just soccer. I see this with NBA players all the time is situational fits. Do players 
fit into a new team, into a system. There's a lot of really talented players that for whatever reason, the fit doesn't work and they end up going somewhere else eventually. And, you know, it took a little while, but not a, not a crazy long time for Christian Pulisic to show that he can be a good fit at Chelsea in the Premier League for Frank Lampard. And I think we have a pretty good idea of that now. And, and so then it's a matter of staying healthy, being productive. And there's still big games coming up, obviously, with, uh, with Champions League. There's going to be big games in the Premier League. And, you know, the title's decided. So the top four is going to be what a lot of us are paying attention to and maybe even the relegation race too. I actually want to stay there because it gets us to not talk about Chelsea's struggles. So a little <laughs> bit of a distraction. And obviously it's frustrating for Chelsea fans seeing Liverpool play at the heights that they're playing right now. But this is as good of a side that I can ever really remember in the Premier League. And I'm, and I'm lumping in some great Arsenal teams and some very recent great Man City teams. Great Chelsea teams, too. Yeah, this is a spectacular Liverpool side. And even when they get tested, they still find a way to come out and get wins. They're not even really drawing teams. Can you put in perspective what we're seeing from Jurgen Klopp's side? I mean, it's absolutely incredible, you know. And, and the longer this continues, the more incredible it gets. They have dropped two points, Liverpool, this entire season. That's 22 league games. They've only lost one game at all, and that was against Napoli, which is mystifying to me now when you see Napoli and what they're doing. This isn't even like, you know, when the Arsenal had the Invincibles in 03-04, they had a lot of ties that year. They dropped a lot of points. And Liverpool's not even dropping points. They're not tying anybody. To see them continue doing this week after week after week, and to do it, it's not like they're beating teams by five goals every game. If you look at the goal difference, which I guess is what, plus 38 now, it's the exact same as Man City's. When you look at the Premier League, though, no team is really close, certainly in the table, and Man City seems that their apex with this current crop of players probably came last year. Who's going to test this team? Are we in the midst of a several years run? Or is a team like Chelsea with younger players probably the best team suited to take on this team such that it is because the gulf seems mighty wide right now? You know, right now, I just feel like there's a big two if you look at the last few years of the Premier League, and that's Liverpool and Man City. And is it possible for Chelsea or other teams to get into that big two? Yeah, but it's a fairly big gap right now. And, you know, I think what City's showing is, is that you can play at an extremely, extremely high level. You can get 100 points in the league. But yeah, there tend to be cycles, right? Like, I think if you look at the over the, the decades, even at, at the really highest level, there's about a three year cycle uh, before you got to make some pretty significant changes. So I don't want to necessarily assume that Liverpool's cycle is going to continue for years and years. They're making some great decisions. They have an amazing manager, but you never know. And so I'm curious to see how the next couple seasons shake out because I've had people say to me, well, England's just like Spain, you know, with Real Madrid and Barcelona. It's a big two. Will some other teams be able to break into that big two? I don't actually know. And I, I, that's going to be an intriguing story to follow. But one of the things that I think that Liverpool does well is something that we mentioned and we've talked about plenty on this podcast is break teams down that are defending. And it actually seems now 
that there aren't a lot of teams in world football that have this answer. I mean, even, you know, Real Madrid has drawn a ton of games. Barcelona are, are not, you know, the same dynamic force in that respect that they've been in years previous. Would you say that defenses have caught up to the very advanced attacking ideas that a lot of these top-class managers have brought into the game? What would you say is the main reason why non-Liverpool teams are struggling to break defensive teams down? It's a great question. I look at it when you talk about like the modern game. Who does that include? And you know, I just wrote a story on Jurgen Klopp for Sports Illustrated, spent time with him, obviously followed Liverpool's season really closely. And I feel like he's adapting as as the seasons go on. And, you know, with a slight exception of this season, I think uh, Pep Guardiola has done a lot of the same types of things to not just settle for for where they are. And, And you see how Liverpool plays. And this isn't necessarily how they were playing under Klopp three seasons ago. It's not necessarily how Klopp's team was playing at Dortmund before that. Yes, They still have a high press, but a lot of it, too, is just possession-based. A a lot of it is about getting both fullbacks forward for Liverpool, and they're absolutely amazing at that. Both their fullbacks, I think you could argue, are the best in in the world at their position right now. And, you know, you see Guardiola adapt as well. I don't see coaches that were at the top of their field a decade ago necessarily doing that. And I'm talking about Jose Mourinho. I'm talking about Carlo Ancelotti. You know, Arsene Wenger, even, they just didn't totally adapt to what we view as the modern game. What do you make of Kepa's recent struggles here in the Premier League? The stats aren't too kind for him, understanding that, say, percentage isn't always the truest stat to say how good a, a keeper is. But right now, he has the worst save percentage of any keeper in the Premier League. He had a pretty impressive debut season, even though he had a very memorable bout with uh, Maurizio Sarri <laughs> in the Carabao Cup final. He obviously had that world record price tag attached to him. How do you view Kepa's season so far with Chelsea and potential future? Days like today when, you know, when Arsenal gets two goals off, what, two shots? Um, you know, that's not necessarily on him, but it's it's got to be frustrating for Chelsea fans. I do think when you come in with a giant price tag like that, there's going to be pressure on you. And... I would say the general feeling at this point is that he hasn't been as good as what the price tag would have indicated. And he needs to start showing that. And I don't think I'm being overly harsh in saying that. I don't think he's been poor necessarily, but I, I, I don't think you could look at his season so far and, and say it's it's been terrific either. So, you know, he's been there long enough. I, I'd like to see him establish himself a bit more. He's Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated, a friend of the podcast, and uh, this is his formal debut, but we hope to have him on many times over over the course of the history of this Chelsea Mic'd Up pod. Grant, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, guys. Take care. Okay, Chris Whittingham, my neutral observer friend, who really shines when it comes to the enunciation of certain last names. So I'm going to let you ball out right now. Okay. Kepa Arizabalaga. A controversial figure over the last few games here for Chelsea. It seems as though every Chelsea fan with a Twitter account has an opinion. Mm. Obviously, you can't have that conversation about Kepa without mentioning the price tag as Grant Wall sort of went to. I think there are certain parts about his game. It's it's really unfair to him to sort of just lump it into his height. There's certain parts of his game that have been issues 
that could probably be answered by just maybe taking a bit more chances. And you really don't know what the fallout might be of him being a more aggressive keeper. The stats are in kind. We went over it. We're safe percentage in the Premier League. Arsenal, as recently as his last match, scoring on both of their shots. We have joked around that uh, Kepa leads the world and not being able to do anything about that one. <laughs> and, and I do think that there is a story to be told outside of just save percentage. And there is a room for that argument, which is, I don't know how we quantify it, but there are plenty of goals that go in that Kepa can't absolutely do anything about. And there have been times, like, for example, against Brighton, I thought he was your most valuable player. Hell, let's not act like he wasn't immensely crucial to Chelsea's Europa League run. But he was brought in for a very specific purpose. Maurizio Sarri wanted a goalkeeper that could distribute from the back. Chelsea were in a bad way because they didn't really have an answer because Thibaut Courtois basically forced his way to Real Madrid. What do you make of this entire Kepa situation? Is it even fair to call it a situation? Because a lot of people are emotionally taking out their frustrations on the keeper when this might be more of a team issue. Yeah, and it's surprising because, uh, to me, blaming the keeper is a a very American phenomenon. Uh, Or the refs. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, the keeper and the rest. But I think it's because, like in hockey, you know, goaltenders, you're successful if you save 93% of shots. And so if a goalkeeper doesn't make a save, I think the first one, again, a heroic performance would have a goalkeeper make a save in that situation. Martinelli's finish wasn't that good. But Martinelli also has 40 yards to run 1v1 at the goalkeeper. You can't necessarily blame him for that. It's more right. the second one. Yeah. And, and I think it's these incidents where it seems like a goalkeeper could have done more, right? Where maybe Arisa Balaga is shaded too much toward his near post on the second goal. Maybe or he's a hair too late to react. Yeah, a hair too late to react. And it's also coming around to players, so it will give him... But to me, I think the reason why this is a situation such that it is, you mentioned the stylistic elements. I think it's when you pay that much for a goalkeeper... You're expecting him to have everything, right? Every part of his game locked down. Similar to Liverpool spent a ton of money on Allison, and he can do everything. Uh, he is six foot four, can make saves, can play the ball with his feet, and is commanding in the air. He is a complete goalkeeper that has all the skills that you would want. But what has happened in a year for people to forget that Kepa can do everything? Kepa was doing everything outside of being six foot four. Well, I, I think. There was always a vulnerability in Chelsea's style of play is it sees him play the ball less, but it also sees opponents have the ball more. I think, it, you know, when Maurizio Sarri had 65% possession in every single match, goalkeepers aren't going to be doing as much. I, I, I went to a game, I went to a Europa League game in March where he was literally doing calisthenics for 30 minutes of the match. Just absolutely nothing for the entire game. So he's also being involved more, which I think is a real difference. But but, but you can can all say his performance has dropped off. From year one to year two, his performance has dropped off. I'm pretty sure if you were also in attendance at Sanford Bridge against Arsenal, he was also doing calisthenics. (laughs) I mean, he only faced two shots. That, That match was predominantly played on Arsenal's side of the pitch. So I, I don't look. I, I just, I just think that there were really good moments for Kepa last year, and obviously, it hasn't been a great campaign for Kepa himself. But it hasn't been a great campaign for the defense, and there's certainly, whether it's having more consistent players out there, that back line has been in a constant state of flux. And I have to imagine, for a, a position that's so reliant on communication, that can't help either. I think that he has all the talent in the world. He was very good last year, worthy of the price tag. And look, Courtois was a disaster last year. And now, all of a sudden, Real Madrid and Thibaut Courtois supporters are laughing at Chelsea 
and the decision that they made because Courtois has been spectacular here recently. There are peaks and valleys with this position, and I think, like anything, he can be aided by a little bit more consistency with that starting 11, as I'm sure Frank Lampard goes home every night pounding the table, wishing that he had all the players at his disposal, but... You made a great point when he said that's the reality of European football. Let's go into some news and notes as I cry a little bit more about injuries. <laughs> Subtly sort of saying, it's not fair, everyone's hurt. <laughs> Tell me where we stand with Reese James. He was remarkable once again against Newcastle. Every Chelsea fan freaked out. as And honestly, fans of just brilliant football because he has just burst onto the scene. As one of the premier attacking right backs here in just the last few weeks, where do we stand with Reese James's injury? Yeah, it, I think it's a good deal of fortune that Frank Lampard said in his press conference ahead of the Arsenal match that he was in contention to play. So this injury is not that bad. He said, uh, quote, he's got an injury to the back of his knee area, not as bad as it could have been or we may be thought. So that's really good news that Reese James at least won't miss a prolonged period of time. And the other thing that I wanted to get to is that Christian Pulisic is going to be out until uh, mid-February, but that is a little bit circumstantial because Chelsea don't play for a period of 16 days. And so after they play against Hull in the FA Cup. They have a league match against Manchester United, and that's it. And then they have two weeks off because the Premier League is doing this alternate winter break where half the teams get a week off one week and then the other half get the week off the next week. So you, you, you basically go two weeks without playing. And so Chelsea are going to have one where they go from February the 1st until February the 17th without playing. I'm sorry, the first game is against Leicester and then the 16 days off and they play Man United. Two so, huge fixtures. Right, of course, especially when you're talking about the top four race. So to me, the fact that Chelsea's fixture congestion is dialing down a little bit in this period could help with James, with Pulisic. And the fact that James isn't going to miss a long period and isn't going to miss a ton of games, right? Because if, if this injury happens on December 21st, then he's missing five games. Whereas now he might miss one, maybe two, and he'll be fine. The window sort of closed with Grant Wall as we got bogged down into something else. But I do think with Christian Pulisic, some of the frustration is you're not seeing a lot of these injuries. They're happening on the training grounds. Mm. He got injured once on a warm down. Yeah. So like, I do think that there, we've had this conversation before and you sort of talked me down. But after hearing Grant Wall, who's followed Christian Pulisic's career a lot longer and a lot closer than we have, I'm starting to get a little worried that this might be a bigger issue with him. He mentioned Aryan uh, Robin, and I kind of a chill went down my spine mm -hmm. because he's a brilliant player, and he could have been talked about as like third place behind Messi and Ronaldo and have, and during have, his era. Could have done it for Chelsea too. Yeah, yeah. Well, he could have done it for like 15 teams. <laughs> But Robin, as a player comparison, although brilliant, consistency and fitness was always a concern with him. Now let's change our attention to the women's side. That's right. Chelsea have a damn good side with their women's team. And Sam Kerr, the sensational striker from Australia, recently made her Chelsea debut. And she just scored her first goal. Chris, I will walk you upstairs after this podcast and I will show you my Sam Kerr jersey that I ordered in the mail I am so excited to have this player and to be finally able to watch her in a Chelsea uniform because it's been a few weeks since she was announced. Right. I think they had to wait until the January window to open and now she's officially arrived and uh, I think she got an assist on her debut and now has a goal with it as well. And Chelsea are in a very thick title race right now at the top of the FA Women's Super League and uh, Chelsea right now are a point off of Arsenal who they just beat 4-1. Chelsea just absolutely ripped them apart. And I want to point, direct your attention beyond Sam Kerr's goal, which is obviously great that she's opened her account. But Sophie Ingle, 
scored an incredible goal. We can retweet it from our social media, but it just an incredible strike from edge of the penalty. I heard it compared to a goal that Joe Cole scored at the World Cup like 13 years ago. It is exactly yeah. the Joe Cole World Cup goal. Yeah, and so uh, Sophie Ingle, uh, check that out. But Chelsea are, with a game in hand, just one point off the top of the table, and uh, they're flying right now. I've, I was listening to uh, the Guardian pod, and they were saying that Chelsea right now would probably be the favorites to win the league, even though they're not in first right now. So this is a really exciting title race, and Chelsea can bring home some silverware here. And an exciting announcement for listeners of Chelsea Mic'd Up. Sam Kerr will be joining us here on Chelsea Mic'd Up in the coming yes. month. We have an interview with Reese James and Sam Kerr. I cannot contain myself. If you're supportive of the things that we are doing here, you probably already subscribe. But retweet the podcast, share with your friends, leave comments for us. Reach Throw out. it in the WhatsApp group. <laughs> Throw it in the WhatsApp group. I know you're doing it. I'm in like four of them with you Chelsea supporters out there. We've gotten really good support from some of the great supporters clubs around this great nation of ours here in the United States. And please subscribe if you haven't. What are you doing, you idiots? <laughs> I, got, I just had a baby. I'm trying to guilt you now into subscribing. So go ahead and do that so I can... It's, I need to put food on her table, even yeah. though she's breastfeeding right now, and it's making a real mess. <laughs> I should have found a bottle for it. Is that... <laughs> should we leave that in? <laughs> I'm just despondent. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, a bit, it's been a tough week, You can folks. Just, just end the podcast. It's been a tough just, week. Just bring it to an end. Yeah. The end. The end.